Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 45, the book of Revelation, chapter 20, continued. The 20th chapter of the book of Revelation begins like this. Next I saw an angel coming down from heaven who had the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, the adversary, and chained him up for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, he locked it, he sealed it over him so that he could not deceive the nations anymore till the thousand years were over. And after that, he has to be set free for a little while. I'm going to spend a few minutes to review last week's lesson because there's some foundational guideposts that need to be established in order to better help us understand the end times and the way God intended for us to understand it. The goal is to help us live our lives in anticipation of not only the coming turbulence as the end gets nearer, but also what we face today within and without Christianity in the church that often opposes God's purpose for us. Over the centuries, Christianity has fractured into many denominations, and those denominations have established many doctrines about the end times that are not uniform. However, they do tend to operate within three or four overriding categories of belief of which scholars I've identified and given names. The category I operate from is called premillennialism. And while there are a number of variants within that view, such as dispensationalism, which allow denominations to separate themselves just a little bit from other similar ones, the primary feature of premillennialism is, that's the most important thing about it, is this insistence that there be a physical, tangible kingdom of God on earth, ruled and reigned by Yeshua in person, and it will exist for a literal 1,000 years. Another important feature of premillennialism concerns when this 1,000-year kingdom begins and ends. The starting point is marked by when Messiah returns to lead the fight at the Battle of Armageddon. And upon his victory of this short and decisive war, the Lord's Millennial Kingdom is inaugurated. The ending point we'll discuss later. Another key milestone to mark the inauguration of the thousand-year reign of Christ is that Satan is bound in supernatural chains and put into captivity in the abyss so that he can no longer be the cause of evil inclinations in humanity to choose obedience and sin, nor can he deceive peoples and nations into believing and behaving wrongly and thus doing his will 
instead of God's will. So Satan's direct influence is ended for a time. Just for a time. Now the chief doctrinal antagonist to premillennialism is the doctrine of amillennialism, which we discussed in our previous lesson. Amillennialism encompasses the largest part of the church today, although it wasn't always that way. The earliest church fathers believed in a literal 1,000 year kingdom as the correct end times doctrine. The basis for amillennial thought and theology seems to have begun with the church father Augustine right around 400 AD. Now at first it was roundly denounced. However, over time, as the church advanced further away from its Hebrew heritage and more towards a Greek style of, of, of thinking and philosophy, amillennialism became the predominant in times belief system. Not surprisingly then, it is the end times doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. Most of the mainline Protestant churches that we could probably label as theologically liberal, as well as most of the several Eastern Orthodox branches in Asia. Now before I briefly restate the chief features of amillennialism, I want to explain why it's so important for, for us to understand what it is and what it means for those who adhere to it. So let me begin by stating that generally speaking, <clears throat> this doctrine does not involve a salvation issue. That is, all millennialists are no more nor less inclined to want to be saved than premillennialists. The amillennialist doctrine does not diminish nor dismiss Jesus Christ as being Savior and Lord. However, there are important features of the amillennial doctrine that affects far more than what's going to happen in the end times. I want you to know about this because I guarantee you that for everyone listening and watching this lesson, you have friends or family whose church is amillennialist, even if they're not even aware of it. In fact, I've been informed from colleagues and acquaintances who attend church denominations whose basic doctrines include those of amillennialism that the congregation members rarely have any idea of it because it's not spoken about from the pulpit. Now, first and foremost, amillennialism does not believe in the literalness of the Bible. That right there is a huge red flag. And it's a very troublesome reality that ultimately will affect all that they teach and believe. Amillennialism teaches that much of the Bible needs to and ought to be taught allegorically. It's always important for us to define terms. We know what we're talking about. 
So here is what the Webster Dictionary says it means to view something or to teach something allegorically. It means the expression by means of symbolic fictional figures and actions or truths or generalizations about human existence. Now the key words in that definition are symbolic, fictional, and generalizations. As a result of allegorical interpretations, amillennialists also do not believe in a literal millennial kingdom on earth ruled by Christ. But this doctrine also has at its root the belief that what we read in Revelation chapter 20, remember what we started out with today, about the devil being chained up and thrown into captivity has already happened a long time ago when Christ was crucified. Therefore they say that for the past 2,000 years Satan has had nothing to do with human events. He has had no influence over the behavior of mankind. Further, the church and therefore Christians have been protected from Satan. We have no need to fear him. And peoples and nations have not been deceived and led astray by him. In other words, Satan has played no role in human history since the day Yeshua was crucified on the cross. Not only does this seem impossible merely by observation as we see the world all around us just deteriorate morally it grows darker, it grows more wicked with each passing year but this doctrine also essentially nullifies some of the most important New Testament instructions that we receive from the likes of Peter and from James regarding how we are to fight evil and avoid temptation. Listen to 1 Peter 5.8 Stay sober. Stay alert. Your enemy, the adversary, stalks about like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. James 4.7 Therefore submit to God. Moreover, take a stand against the adversary and he will flee from you. Revelation 2.10 Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the adversary is going to have some of you thrown in prison in order to put you to the test. And you will face an ordeal for ten days. Remain faithful even to the point of death. And I will give you life as your crown. Now there are several other Bible passages that I could quote for you. But this, this is sufficient. Every one of these statements about the imminent danger of the person of Satan to believers is made years, decades even, after Christ was crucified. So the apostles certainly didn't think that the adversary was bound up and made harmless at their master's death. Therefore, it is with full confidence that I say to you, Amillennialism is a poorly constructed and wrong-minded man-made doctrine that is 
more than an error. It can make believers complacent about the dangers that Satan and his demons present to us. I mean, it essentially negates the whole concept of spiritual warfare. It also sends us down impossible rabbit trails when trying to discern the book of Revelation. So, we shall move forward understanding that the first three verses of Revelation 20 tell us of the binding and removal of Satan from world affairs at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. And that we can know confidently that there is a literal 1,000 year kingdom in our future and it will be ruled in person by Yeshua. And yet, to mark the end of that 1,000 year period of time, God will loose Satan upon the world for a short time. In fact, in a few verses that event is covered in a little more detail. Now because we've read through chapter 20 a couple of times, we'll repeat the verses but we're going to do it in bite-sized chunks. So look look, uh, with me to verses 4 through 6 of Revelation chapter 20. It's on page 1553 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Verses 4 through 6. Then I saw thrones, and those seated on them received authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for testifying about Yeshua and proclaiming the word of God. Also those who had not worshipped the beast or its image had not received the mark on their foreheads and on their hands. They came to life. They ruled with Messiah for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were over. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is anyone who has a part in the first resurrection. Over him, the second death has no power. On the contrary, they will be kohanim, they will be priests of God and of the Messiah, and they will rule with him for the thousand years. Now you can look at last week's lesson online to get a fuller explanation, but my opinion is that those thrones and the people sitting on them are twelve in number. They are the twelve disciples of Christ and they are the only ones to receive their own personal thrones. They will be ruling over the house of Israel, all twelve tribes. To be clear, it will be the members of those twelve Israelite tribes who have trusted in Yeshua as their Messiah. Now, this means that this does not include believers in general, nor any of the others listed in the remainder of verse 4. Rather, those who are the righteous dead, killed or dying for any reason, will come to life, will rule with Messiah during that thousand year reign. But then we get some words that on the surface are, are ambiguous. It says, this is the first resurrection. So since this statement comes after saying that the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were over, 
Does this mean that the first resurrection includes every soul mentioned so far? Or does it pertain only to every soul listed, but does not include those called the rest of the dead? I think this can be straightened out by looking to 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 15, 22 through 26, we read this. For just as in connection with Adam all die, so in connection with Messiah all will be made alive. But each in his own order. The Messiah is the first fruits, then those who belong to the Messiah at the time of his coming. Then the culmination when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after having put an end to every rulership, yes, to every authority and power. For he has to rule until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy enemy to be done away with will be death. So according to Paul, All who are connected to Messiah will be resurrected from the dead. However, there will be a certain order in which resurrection will occur. The first to rise after Messiah, as the first fruits, will be those who are believers up to the moment of his second coming. Then at the end, keep Complete Jewish Bible says culmination. It's just another way of saying the end. At the end, at the time Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father, there will be another resurrection of believers. So to be clear, the first resurrection is of those souls of believers who trusted Christ probably up to the uh, moment he comes leading a heavenly army. If we determine that that's the moment that the Bible would mark as his second coming. There's a little leeway in that. Then from that moment until when will all others be resurrected? The when of the next resurrection is important. And it says it will be at the end of the 1,000 year reign. This is the case because during the thousand year reign the kingdom belongs to who? Who's it belong to? Christ, Yeshua. After the thousand year reign, what does it say happens? Christ returns it to the Father. And during this thousand year reign Christ will bring to an end, we're told, every power and authority because all his enemies have to be destroyed. Until the end of the thousand years, Satan indeed is alive. He's an enemy, but he's subdued. So this has to be referring, most importantly, to a permanent end of Satan and those who follow him. Now let's back up a little bit to verse 3. The last words of verse 3 are, After that, he, Satan, 
has to be set free for a little while. So Satan is going to be intentionally set free at the end of the 1,000 years for the purpose of exposing those who have secretly been harboring evil plans against Yeshua and against God's kingdom. So during the millennium, evil will not have been eradicated because it still resides in the nature even of believers. Now we like to think, it's been taught by some Christian leaders, that once we receive the new nature from the Holy Spirit as believers, the old one is dead and gone. But scripturally that's not the case. See, you and I, we're, we're in a very difficult position. That both natures, that of our old self and that of our new self, exist within us. And they are going to war against one another to see which can control us. I'm going to read you an extended dissertation and admission by, a, by the Apostle Paul about this very issue. Why? Because this not only explains our current frustrating condition as followers of Messiah, but it also explains why at the end of the thousand year reign of Christ some large number of individuals are going to rebel against him and they will be ultimately destroyed as a result. I'm going to take this from Romans 7 verses 12 through 25. So, the Torah is holy. That is, the commandment is holy, just, and good. Then did something good become for me the source of death? Heaven forbid! Rather, it was sin working death in me through something good, so that sin might be clearly exposed as sin so that sin through the commandment might come to be experienced as sinful beyond measure. For we know that the Torah is of the Spirit. But as for me, I'm bound to the old nature, sold to sin as a slave. I don't understand my own behavior. I don't do what I want to do. Instead, I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I'm, going, if I'm doing what I don't want to do, that I'm agreeing that the Torah is good. But now it's no longer the real me doing it. It's the sin housed inside of me. For I know that there's nothing good housed inside of me that is inside my old nature. I mean, I can want what is good, but I can't do it. For I don't do the good I want. Instead, the evil I don't want is what I do. But if I'm doing what the real me doesn't want, it's no longer the real me doing it, but the sin that's housed inside of me. So I find it to be the rule, a kind of a perverse Torah, that although I want to do what is good, evil's right there with me. For in my inner self, I completely agree with God's Torah, but in my various parts... I see a different Torah. One that battles with the Torah in my mind. And it makes me a prisoner of sin's Torah, which is operating in my various parts. I mean, what a miserable creature I am! 
Who's going to rescue me from this body that's bound for death? Thanks be to God, He will through Yeshua, the Messiah, our Lord. That explains it pretty well, doesn't it? I mean, have you ever stumbled, perhaps badly, in your walk with God and had these same kinds of thoughts afterwards? Why, oh why, would I do such a thing when I know better than this? Why, when I have the Holy Spirit living within me, would I do these things? I've had it happen. Paul did. So we're in pretty good company. Basically, Paul says that while we have a new nature in our souls, our minds are still slaves to our old nature. So it's a battle of the old mind versus the regenerated soul. And this battle is going to exist throughout the millennium such that at the end, some significant number of people are going to lose their battle to their evil inclinations. In the millennial kingdom, Messiah will not be ruling over a perfect planet or over a population of perfect people. This is why he's going to rule with an iron rod a no-tolerance policy for sin. Because if sin in humans ended as Christ comes into power, there'd be no need for the Torah to set down the law. No need to rule with unyielding authority. Well, now comes another difficult question. And what I'm about to say to you is my opinion based on scriptural evidence. Are those who were believers at Christ's second coming getting a somewhat different treatment than those who become believers afterward? As you read these verses, you'd have to say yes. It certainly seems so. Not only are those who had a saving faith at the time of his return going to be the first to rise, they are going to rule and reign with Christ during that thousand year period as a reward for our faithfulness. This is why the first words of verse 6 say this group will be called Blessed and holy. Blessed tells of their condition. Holy speaks of their absolute purity. None of these who died prior to this time will ever be involved in the rebellion led by Satan at the end of the thousand years and none of these will ever die during the millennium because they've already died once. So they will be present and alive in the kingdom on earth ruling with Messiah for the entire 1,000 year period. Those who died after Yeshua's second coming 
And those who live and die during the thousand year reign will be resurrected at the end of that thousand year period. That's actually logical. Consider this. The millennial kingdom at first, follow along with me now, the millennial kingdom at first is going to be populated by a minority of believers who survived the end times calamities plus a majority of re-embodied souls of believers who died prior to his second coming. Does that make sense? So it seems we're going to have a mixed population. Those who return to earth from heaven in what I can only call glorified bodies, of which I can say no more because I don't know any more about them than that, they're going to live throughout that thousand years. Those who survived the end times and enter the millennial kingdom as believers will age and die as will their offspring and keep this in mind since the children of those believers will be just as much regular human beings as you and I it means they will in no way be born redeemed they're going to have to make the same conscious choice to love and trust Messiah as we had to, as their parents had to. And clearly, some will not accept him. And most of those who don't, I think, will have to pretend as though they did so as to not be discovered and dealt with. So there will be births and deaths of human beings all during the Millennial Kingdom. And as Ezekiel 40-48 to demonstrates, animals will also lose their lives on the temple altar. This is why we read in 1 Corinthians 15-26 that the last thing, the very last thing to be conquered at the right at the end of the millennial kingdom will be what? Death. Can be a lot of death during the millennial kingdom. The human population will increase, but the re-embodied population will remain static the entire one thousand years. So by the end of a thousand years, I imagine the regular human population is going to be larger than those who will wear glorified bodies because while those with glorified bodies will not age and die, they're also not going to be procreating. Let's read verses 7 through 10 now of Revelation chapter 20. 7 through 10. When the thousand years are over, 
the adversary will be set free from his prison and he will go out to deceive the nations in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is countless as the sand on the seashore. And they came up over the breadth of the land and surrounded the camp of God's people and the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The adversary who had deceived them was hurled into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now as verse 3 stated, Satan will be freed at the end of the 1,000 years and he will be the one who leads the nations in rebellion against Christ. This tells us something important about the Millennial Kingdom. There's going to be nations. Now in order for a nation to be a nation, it has to have borders and a government. We're also told that the rebellion will come from Satan deceiving the nations and the nations will come from the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, and gather for battle. Who are they going to battle? Unbelievably, since Christ is still ruling in person, either Satan has deceived some among the nations into thinking he's really not God, or that even if he is God, he can still be defeated. What a bunch of dummies. <laughs> I mean, on the other hand, we need to remember that a thousand years has passed since the Battle of Armageddon. Since Christ returned in such a spectacular fashion so that it left no doubt among the mankind who was living then of who he is and of the truth of God's word. You know, as humans, we can lose our memories of history in less than a generation. So with ten centuries having transpired, Christ ruling the world is going to become rather old hat. Now since we read of Gog and Magog as front and center in the battle of Armageddon, is this the same Gog and Magog rebelling once again? Perhaps, but I think not. I think this time Gog and Magog are just representative of those among all the earth's nations who are going to rebel, rebel against Christ. This is the case, I believe. Because the wording is, when the thousand years are over, the adversary will be set free from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for the battle. So it is not that Gog and Magog are necessarily the proper names of rebellious nations or the names of rebellious leaders of nations, but rather they represent all the rebellious nations of the planet. And since Gog and Magog were the primary forces at the Battle of Armageddon, we see a familiar pattern arise at the end of the millennium regarding who 
who participated, and the final result. As verse 8 states, the number of rebels is going to be enormous. I mean, that just staggers me that that could be the case. This means that just as with the Battle of Armageddon a thousand years earlier, their sheer numbers are the source of their self-destructive arrogance. And it deceives them into thinking they can't lose. Satan, whose primary characteristics are liar and deceiver, convinces the nations that they can win. They can establish their own government. These nations who have banded together will march towards the land, we're told. Well, that means Israel. With intent to attack the city he loves. The city he loves is Jerusalem. But it's a new title for the city. Never before in the Bible has a similar description been used for Jerusalem. However, this is the millennial Jerusalem. It's the redeemed Jerusalem. This is the place where Yeshua resides. It is the capital city of the worldwide kingdom of God. This Jerusalem is as pure as the older Jerusalem was corrupt. So there can be no doubt who and what the target of Gog and Magog is. It is the very heart of God's kingdom on earth. And who else would lead a battle to wrest control of this government away from God's son but Satan? God's adversary who wants to govern the earth as a god. So Israel is front and center not only in the end times but even into the age of the millennial kingdom. See, here's a principle that every reader and interpreter of the Bible needs to hold very closely from a material, physical, and temporal perspective. Everything that happens on earth, everything that is predicted for the future of the earth and humanity is Israel-centric. Everything. From a spiritual perspective, everything that happens in the invisible spiritual sphere and that is predicted for the future takes place in the biblically described heaven. See, this reality actually riles some Christian denominations and Bible commentators to the point they will employ extravagant means to find a way to change the physical, material, and temporal perspective of the Bible away from Israel and towards the Gentile world. In this attempt, meaning gets lost. And the special set-apart nature of Israel and her people, that's just set on the shelf. And when that happens, truth just takes a back seat to human traditions and doctrines. And especially when trying to decipher the already difficult book of Revelation, forgetting these basic principles makes understanding the end times impossible.
Further, since God is a God of uh, patterns, then of course His pattern of luring the rebellious nations towards Israel and Jerusalem, whereby they are supernaturally destroyed, is repeated at the end of the millennium. As it was at Armageddon, so it will be at this battle at the end of the millennium. So we hear that as the nation's armies ready to attack, fire came down from heaven and consumed them. I'm going to remind you that there is not one word in chapter 19 about a believer's army or an Israeli army joining the battle of Armageddon to try and stave off the armies of the nations. We only read that Yeshua came with an army from heaven and every soldier of the rebellious armies of the Antichrist were destroyed. No protracted war, no war dead on the side of righteousness. And we read here in chapter 20 now that the battle at the end of the millennium was decided similarly. The nations gathered with their weapons and their myriads of soldiers. They surrounded Jerusalem. Immediately, we're told, fire came down from heaven and killed them all. Not a word about human soldiers from Jerusalem in the battle, not even of heavenly angels. So now that the wicked have once again been purged from the earth, Satan is dealt with in a permanent fashion. He is thrown into the lake of fire to join the beast and the false prophet. They will be in torment day and night forever we are told. Here is where we find the closest thing to a fairly definitive statement of the nature of hell and what happens to those who are placed there. There can be no doubt due to the clear and plain sense of the words that Satan, the beast, and the false prophet were not destroyed nor their essence forever erased. Rather, their destiny is to be locked away and suffer torment forever. You know, fire is always one of two things in the Bible. It is either to purify the righteous or to destroy the wicked. But here the fire is used to torment the wicked. There is no escape from it. It is said by some believers and commentators that being sent to hell means a permanent separation from God and that's the torment. I don't think so. The wicked never wanted a relationship with God in the first place. Now they're going to be tormented because they're not near Him? Nah. Satan, the beast, the prophet, false prophet, you know what? They weren't atheists. 
So it's not that they didn't believe in God or didn't believe in the supernatural. For them, separation from God is what they sought. Closeness to Him was never their desire. People of all ages understand that being burnt by fire is one of the most painful things a person can endure. So while no doubt a lake of fire is not the literal physical place where these evil beings were placed, whatever and wherever it is in the spiritual realm brings the evil captives at least as much pain and anguish as if a human being were placed alive into a pit and set on fire. Only in this case, the captive never goes unconscious and never dies. And the fire never stops burning. Scary at all? Let us also remember that since this event is taking place in the spiritual sphere, the dimension of time is missing. Therefore, the mention of forever is the same as saying eternity. And eternity represents not a really, really, really long time. But rather, it's the absence of time entirely. The promise of God to the serpent in Genesis 3.15 has finally come about. I will put animosity between you and the woman and between your descendant and her descendant. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. We'll continue with Revelation chapter 20 next time.